There's no way to know what the guy was thinking, but I know what I would be thinking. I hope they don't drop me. Lord, don't let them drop me. Because as they're carrying him on that mat, on that stretcher, and he's just staring up into the sky, every time they'd hear somebody kick a rock or somebody said, oops, probably prepared himself and said, brace yourself for the hit. You see, what had happened is the uh, local prophet made good. This guy named Jesus had, had made his way back to Capernaum. And boy, had he made good. I mean, when he was away, he'd healed this leper over by Tiberias, and it just went all over the region. Everybody knew about it. Everybody had heard about it. Jesus told the guy not to say anything about it, but being clean was too exciting, and the popularity and the book contract were just too tempting. So he told everybody. And pretty soon, everybody as far back as Bethsaida and, and uh, Capernaum had heard about it on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it must have been for this guy, this, this man that everybody knew as paralyzed man. It must have been the same kind of feeling like, well, well what about me? Why can't I see Jesus? Why can't, well, God, why won't you heal me? And you know, you could understand uh, that, that feeling, but he couldn't get in to see Jesus because the place was too packed where Jesus was teaching. The, the building was just so packed that people were standing around the outside of the building listening through the windows, and you couldn't even get close enough to see him. But his friends understood this. In fact, his friends took him uh, on the, the four corners of the mat and picked him up and, and walked him along and, and, and took him up to the top of this building. And all of the buildings around here are flat on the top, sort of like a patio up there. So they kind of caught their breath uh, while they made a plan about what they were going to do. And, and one of the guys had already kind of pushed his way to the front and looked in the window to find out exactly where Jesus was standing so they could make some measurements from the walls and figure out exactly how to put this guy, put their friend down right in front of Jesus. You see, they had faith when their friend didn't have faith. They had, they had uh, faith that Jesus recognized that here were some people that were believing for their friend. Isn't that the way it is? We, we can't understand this now because this is what Jesus has taught. You can't have faith for your friends to become Jesus followers. You can't have faith that will save them, but you can have faith that will walk them over to Jesus so that he can save them. And that's exactly what they did. And as they started to pull apart the, the roof to, to make a hole, they, first they hear some mumbling and rumbling down there, and then they start to break through, and people start going, ah, and the people that are smashed right up in the front, up, up close to Jesus, you know, they, they start to pull back and lean in the crowd as if they expect to be kind of passed over the crowd like a superstar, and, and uh, one guy says, hey, knock it off. I think it was his house. And so they just keep digging and digging until they pull the, the, the thatch and the mud and the in the uh, logs out so that they can put and pass this guy right down in front of Jesus. And Jesus just didn't seem to be stunned at all. He kind of looked up at the guys, gave him a little nod. He looked down at the paralyzed man and he said a very unexpected thing. With a wry smile on his face, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody got quiet because everybody knew he should not have said that because right over here is a bunch of Pharisees a bunch of legal analysts, legal uh, lawyer types that were there to make sure he didn't break the law, and that was breaking the Jewish law. They'd been sent from the big city to try and catch Jesus and check him out. And they start thinking, this can't be, and they got this terrible look in their face, and it's kind of a cross between being shocked and having a sour olive in your mouth that you thought looked good before you put it in there. 
And so they, they, they kind of move forward a little bit more and Jesus looks right at them and he knows what they're thinking. And it wasn't like just their look in their face. It was not a party trick because he knew details of what they were thinking. And he, and he, and he looked at them and he, he said, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? And they kind of were stunned and put back. And then he said another really shocking thing. He called himself the son of man as everybody is just stunned that he had actually said, could this be, could this be the son of man? And then he said, he looked at these Pharisees and, and, and then he looked at the, the one formerly known as paralyzed man and he said to him, hey, pick up your mat and walk out of here. And that's exactly what he did. He picked it up and the crowd just parted. He walked right out through the door and the Pharisees tried to grab at Jesus, but they couldn't because the crowd just kind of consumed them and they went falling back into the crowd with a stunned look. And that was such an amazing thing that to realize that Jesus was the son of man. You don't know what I'm talking about? We all know what he was talking about. Jesus called himself the Son of Man, which was a, a, a divine superhuman hero that we had all been waiting for. And Jesus said it so matter-of-factly, it was as if he said, just so you know, I am the Son of Man. And he healed the guy that only the, only the Son of Man could do. We don't know if that's exactly all that had happened or what was in people's minds, but we get a pretty good hint that that's what was in people's minds. In the eyewitness account that Mark gives us of people that were there that day, one particular person named Peter in particular, and, and, and we, we begin to see and realize that Jesus is uh, taking this authority thing to the extreme. Remember, we, we've seen the last couple of weeks that Jesus, when he came, he declared that the kingdom on earth is here and I'm the king. And, and now he's declared that he is that king as the, the son of man, the ultimate king. And we'll get to that in a minute. But, but he's, he, we've seen that he has power and authority over his, with his teaching that's more powerful and authoritative than others, with powers over spiritual entities and demons, powers over diseases, powers to call disciples that just seem to kind of walk off when he says, follow me, all of those kinds of things. And today we're going to see that he starts off in this early stages of his ministry, very early, with five controversies, four to five controversies, depending on who's counting and how you divide up the passages. We're going to look at the first two today uh, because they go together, and Ben's going to look at the last two or three next week because they go together. But it's interesting that Jesus starts these controversies with the, uh, with the religious leaders. And the, what, what I think we're supposed to understand, at least in our time, is the way Jesus starts his ministry is so politically incorrect. It's definitely religiously incorrect. I mean, look what happens beginning at verse 1, chapter 2 of the book of Mark. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, and since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat uh, the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he recognized it, so he, he saw their faith, 
He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is, we, we can't go through every little detail, uh, but I just got to stop here. Every little detail of, of, of every story that Jesus ever did, because, you know, when you think about it, if, if these are the words of God, if this is uh, the word of God, we're not going to be able in one sitting just to cover everything. That's why it's new every time you come back to it. But I just need to call this one thing out. It, do you notice how the, the, his, this guy's buddies, uh, their faith doesn't save the guy, but sometimes, you know, you don't you sometimes need some of your Christian friends, some of your Jesus-following friends to kind of come around you and pick you up when your faith is lagging a little bit? Now, if you live there all the time, we have another conversation, but let's forget that for a second. This is sort of Jesus stating that, hey, you know what? I recognize the faith of your friends, so I'm going to help you kind of thing. It's kind of, it, it, it really gives a whole new meaning to being in fellowship together, being in family together, as believers in Jesus. And he's authenticating it. And look at the outcome. He comes and he does what only he can do. Verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, they were not happy. What does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, which would, by the way, the penalty for blasphemy in the day was death. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking and in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and walked out in full view of everybody. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I bet they hadn't. You see, what... uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's doing the teaching method that was common for teachers in his day. He was doing the, the, the lesser to greater uh, argument, the lesser to more difficult argument. And he says, you know, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I mean, if you say it's easier to, you know, to do one or the other, you know, forgive your sins or the other, I mean, that's kind of, you know, in the same range. But to just say your sins are forgiven, it's easier to do, right? Because you can't prove it and you can't prove it wrong. It's like your sins are forgiven. They are? Okay, good, good. You know, that kind of thing. As opposed to, okay, get up and walk. Everybody's going to see whether or not you can pull that off or not. So he says, just to f- show you, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, the, the latter thing, the, the easier thing, to show you that the harder thing I've done. Okay, the, the, the easier thing I've done. And, and, and the, what he's saying here is, is that the, the healing that comes through the forgiveness of God in our lives isn't that different than the healing that he would do in terms of forgiveness? There's, there's a likeness between the two. You know, that, that, that he can perform miracles in the physical world as well as in the spiritual world. And the most important one that we can never touch and we can't do is this one of forgiving sins. Now, but he does it in the context of something that we kind of, kind of pull out and call out. It, it's called the Son of Man. He says, I am the Son of Man to prove that I'm the Son of Man and that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. 
Okay, so we're going to pull this out. So if Sunday morning is that kind of that part of the week you look forward to because you're not getting any sleep during the week and you just need to, you know, somewhere to sit and, you know, when somebody's yapping at you, go to sleep on them, this would be the time not to do that because if you're going to understand the Bible, if you're going to understand the New Testament specifically, and even more specifically, if you're going to understand the Gospel of Mark and the story of Jesus, you're going to need to know what this Son of Man thing is because there's a lot of confusion out there about it and we can't even, we don't have time to get to the bottom of it today. I will tell you this, that um, one of the best places I have found to kind of get the sort of the parameters of what a Bible passage is or a Bible book is, and, and, and even some topics like the Son of Man, is a place called the Bible Project. Have you heard of them? We've used their videos. Uh, they're right here in Portland. Jordan and I got to take a tour of their studios the other day. Tim Mackey came out and talked to us. It was just really fun. It was really cool. And what really gets me going is, is I think the Bible Project, between that and the Version app on the Bible, this might be a slight exaggeration, but I don't think it's too much. I think they are getting the Bible in front of people as much as anybody since the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's just... It's powerful. And here's the cool thing. It's happening right here in the pagan Northwest, right in our city, Portlandia, where young people go to retire and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's just, it just makes me go, I can't believe it, right here in the middle of the least expected place. And that's enough commercial while I'm ODing on my bliss. But the, the thing about the Son of Man, they've got videos of what I was trying to say. They've got a series, I think, six videos on the Son of Man. They have a podcast where they discuss it for eight uh, eight hours of what the Son of Man means and what that means through the Bible. But in this context, Jesus is using this term of himself for the first time. But it's not the only time. In the book of Mark, he uses it 14 times to refer to himself. You see, most of us, when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people in our secular world today think, well, Christ is his last name. It's not his last name. It's his title. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah or the one who would come to save. Messiah in the Hebrew means uh, uh, anointed one, or technically, this is a little technical stuff for either trivia, Bible trivia games, uh, smeared one, okay? And smearing the oil on someone. Just, I, I don't know, that has nothing to do with anything. And when you get to heaven, I get to heaven, God's gonna say, why'd you spend 30 seconds on that? So here we go. But it means, it means the one who's been anointed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, all right? This kingdom that Jesus says he's come. But son of man is different. Son of man is something that we don't think very much about, but I'm telling you what, they thought about it all the time in Jesus' day. When they heard him say this, they knew what he was saying and why he was saying and the kind of authority that he was declaring. You see, Son of Man is first mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it, it, it literally means the human one, okay? But, but in Jesus' case, it's much more than that. But hang on to that for a second. The human one, we think uh, that Son of Man refers to Jesus' humanness, Son of God. When that phrase is used, uh, which is more rare in the New Testament, by the way, that means his godness. But that's not true. There's much more uh, overlap. There's much more connectedness between the humanity and the godness in Son of Man than we usually give it credit for. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in his book, God calls him Son of Man over 90 times when he gives him the prophecy. But when God uses it of Ezekiel, he means my human one, my favorite human prophet kind of thing. But one prophet later, Daniel, the term is used in the way that Jesus is referring to it and the way that the people in Jesus' time were hoping to see it fulfilled in their time. And here's how it works. In Daniel chapter 7, you know, Daniel's in, in uh, exile in Babylon and he's, he's getting these visions and these dreams of what God's going to do. And he has these visions of the last days, it's called. 
He has the visions of the, la- the one vision of the last day in, in chapter seven of Daniel, where there's all these beasts. It's a terrifying dream. Uh, Daniel says he, he, he or the terrifying vision. He's just terrified for all these beasts, and the last one is the worst one. And there's like this, this horn that comes out, and horns represent power, and it's talking horn, and it's just creepy and, and disgusting and scary. Well, what we find out is uh, that these beasts, these animals were uh, actually representing nations and peoples. People and animals who were devouring one another and treating each other like animals, okay? And I might need to explain this in our day and age, um, you know, because today uh, people tend to take their animals and they elevate them to human status, right? Have you seen, have you heard this? You know, you know my, my dog is, is a human too kind of stuff. Uh, have you heard that phrase? I've heard that phrase. Uh, there's a Hebrew word for that, it's pucky. Okay, so uh, that's just not true. Doesn't mean we should be mean to animals, shouldn't teach them with respect, they're part of God's creation, absolutely we should be, you know, caring for animals. But, you know, if you try to be caring for a cougar, it's gonna eat you. And that's the kind of animals these are. It's not the cute little puppy alligator, it's, this is a scary animal. And so, so that, that's the kind of thing that, that, that Daniel is seeing and he's starting to realize, you know what, people often treat each other like animals. Who is, who is going to save us from this? And here's what happens. Watch, watch this. From uh, verse 11 of Daniel. Then I continued to watch. And the, the Hebrew there is saying, like, I had to make myself watch because it was scary. Uh, because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So that one was destroyed. But the other beasts had been stripped of their authority. We've heard about authority from Jesus already, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now watch this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. There it is. Coming with the clouds. So he's like the Son of Man, but he's more than just a human being. Coming in the clouds of heaven. Coming from the clouds? Like coming from heaven? Apparently. And he approached the ancient of days. Who's that? That would be God himself. So this person apparently is, is someone who is in fact divine in that way and has led into his presence and was led into his presence because you couldn't be in his presence otherwise. The ancient of days, the one from whom of old. And he was given authority, the son of man, and glory and sovereign power and all the nations and the peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel's foretelling that this, thing, this, this person's gonna come and people in Jesus' day were waiting for him and Jesus just said, I've arrived. That's what he's saying here. That's why it was such a, a, a crazy, crazy shock here. Now, just... Um, Stick with me here for one more minute because I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to read uh, to you something from a non-Christian scholar. Before, before we jump forward, let me read for you from a non-Christian scholar. And what I mean by that is this is a Jewish scholar. This guy's named Daniel Boyarin, and Daniel Boyarin is a professor of Talmudic, or the Jewish interpretation of the law, Talmudic culture. In other words, he's a professor of Jewish culture and he teaches at UC Berkeley. Get that. I mean, that'd be kind of weird. Anyway, so he teaches, but he wrote a book called The Jewish Gospel. So he's coming at it from a Jewish perspective. Who is this Jesus guy? Jewish Gospels. Here's what he says about the Son of Man in Jesus' time. Let's just stay with Jesus' time for a moment. Look at this. When Jesus came, 
and walked around Galilee proclaiming himself the Son of Man, no one ever asked, what is the Son of Man anyway? They knew what he was, asking, was talking about and whether they believed his claim or not, much as modern folks in many parts of the world would understand someone saying, I am the Messiah. That start to make sense? They were expecting this superhuman one, this hero that would put everything to rights, that would change everything for them. And Jesus just says, I'm him. You see, when Jesus uses this term, I love what the Bible Project guys say in their project, uh, podcast, Tim Mackey and John Collins. They, come, they kind of compare it to common phrases that we use in our world today, right? It's, uh, you know, there's phrases that, well, I'm going to use a couple here, and you're going to know, and names, and you're going to know, by and large, probably most people here will know what I'm talking about. How about this one? Luke, I'm your father. Eh, remember that? Maybe you know exactly the theater and where you were sitting when you first heard that. You know, Vader is telling Luke Skywalker that as Luke is hanging onto the railing and about to fall out of the Death Star. There. You remember that one in the best of the original three movies, The Empire Strikes Back. But, you know, you kind of all know. That's kind of a cultural phrase now. How about this one? Son of Man is not his name. It's who he is. So you could actually say there's a guy named Peter Parker. That's his name. But he's who? Spider-Man. Yeah, see, I knew you guys. If, if, you're not, if you're a more sane person, you don't watch these movies. That's okay. But, but that's the kind of thing this is. Christ is his name. Jesus Christ is his name. But who he is is the Son of Man, the one we've been waiting for. You see, Son of Man, we can kind of summarize it this way with, with uh, four or five statements here. Look at this. It means the human one, but not merely the human one. It means the long-awaited one from days of old, the ancient of days. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, which makes him God. Okay, so he's right there with God, and he's this God who is from days of old. Have you noticed this? There's this feeling that it would sure be nice for something that didn't change. You know, there's sure be nice for something that didn't like shift underneath us every, every five seconds, Right? Wouldn't it be nice for a morality, for example, that doesn't move around every five years? Wouldn't it be nice to know that, you know, if I, you know, if I follow my doctor's order and I eat chicken, I won't find out one day, don't eat that, it's got steroids. You know, well, something like that. Wouldn't it be nice to know uh, if, that, you know, if I, I give myself to someone, it's just not going to be pulled out from under me, that kind of thing. That is exactly what God is offering, because God is the ancient of days. He has been here from of old. He has not changed since then, but listen to this, as it says in the book of Lamentations, his mercies and his love are new every morning. Only God can be uh, stayed and strong and not change and yet apply himself and apply his love in various situations every single day in a myriad of ways that we can't even imagine and fathom, right? He can do all of that at the same time. That's why he's the long, this one who comes from this, this one who is God himself is from days of old. Have you, have you noticed that there's just this sense in our culture, in our world, that goes, it would just be nice if there was something that I could sure, be sure to put my foot on that didn't shift around backwards and forwards. I think that's a part of a lot of our psychosis today. And I use psychosis not in the clinical sense, but in the descriptive sense. 
Wouldn't it? It, it just seems like that. That's what the, the Son of Man is and, and what Jesus is claiming for himself. Uh, thirdly, it's a type of being more than a title. Well, what type of being? Well, it's the type of being the real-life superhero that everyone's waiting for. One of the Avengers, whatever. I mean, it's somebody that's, that, that, that's who they were waiting for. Only they didn't see it as just a cute little comic book. They actually thought it was true. They thought that it was going to happen. And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming for himself and, and why you can see that these, these Pharisees started to have a deconstruction meltdown. You, you start to, to make sense of it because he's not just claiming to be the next Messiah. We've heard about those. We've heard about this stuff and so forth and so on. So, so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, they got some serious problems. One is they have an existential problem. Their existence was threatened. Why? Because... They thought the Son of Man was going to be like this warrior king that was going to come and challenge the nations, just like those nations that were, were challenged in Daniel's dream. And so they thought, well, here's a, here's a would-be Messiah who's claiming to actually be the divine one, the, the, you know, the human divine one, the, the one who would come as the all-powerful superhero king. And if he goes after Rome and he doesn't pull it off, Rome is going to come and crush us so we have an existential threat standing right here if they hear about this. But secondly, they had a people threat because all the people loved this. They loved him and they loved what they saw and they thought, you know what, I think it's true. And so the crowd just consumes Jesus and they realized if they just tried to yank him out now, they got a people problem and an existential problem. And on top of that, on top of his claiming to forgive sins because he really is the Son of Man, the God one who is at the right hand of God's throne, the Ancient of Days, claiming to be that, he practices as if he actually is. Because he, not what they would expect, but he hangs out and actually hires sinners. It's almost like to rub their nose in it. Watch this, beginning at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Levi almost certainly is Matthew, because Matthew claims that this is him when he writes his gospel. You can look that up in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew uh, it claims to be Levi, but what's interesting here is he's a tax collector. His name is Levi, which almost certainly means he's of the priestly tribe of Israel because he's a, Levi was a Levite's name. Does that make sense? So, so he's, he's you know, a part of the worshiping class, the worship leader class, and yet he's doing something that is horrible to his own fellow Jews. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, he got up and followed him, and so he had a dinner at his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples were there, were many, <clears throat> many who followed him, and when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is not, I have not come to call the righteous, or in this case, self-righteous, but sinners. You see, this is the scandal of God's grace. He comes for the people that don't even want him, don't even know they need him, and they don't even care about him. But sooner or later, he finds the people who are at that place where he go, you know what, I need someone, I need something else. And, and so he, 
He, he comes to those, and it's sort of like, well, look, you know, this is, a, this is a theme, by the way, in the book of Mark. The theme that Jesus is trying to teach here and show here is it, it is the humble person. It's the person that knows they're not all that before God, for whom uh, will, they will receive God's salvation blessings. That's, you'll see this again and again in the book of Mark, this humility that leads to God's salvation blessing. Why? Because sin, it, it, when it causes arrogance, it causes blindness. When it causes pride, it causes blindness. And that's the main sin that sin that kind of gins up in us if we, if, if, if we let it have its free reign. That's this, this blindness. And so what happens is, and what these, uh, these Pharisees are starting to experience, and what Jesus is saying when he says it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick... What he's saying, and, and it's not the righteous, but you know, those who are sinners that need this, and that's why I'm hanging out here. That, that's, when, when he says that, it's starting to dawn on them that what he's saying is, is I came for them, they're closer to God than you are. You know, because people, why? Because they're in a humble position. They're in a position where they know they don't, they're not all that. I mean, you, you look at this, and Matthew throws a party, who comes? Tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because nobody else wants to hang out to them, and this is the only party I can go to, right? That's what they know. And so they just hear Jesus, and Jesus um, doesn't make a prerequisite of his love that they be all perfect and cleaned up, but he, he just goes and bees with them. He, he's, he doesn't act like them. He doesn't have any, you know, any of the, you know, the, the same problems that they're dealing with, but that's what makes him attractive to them. His goodness is attractive to them. And so they come and they, 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 they listen to this and they, they hear this. And the reason the Pharisees, the implication here is the reason that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people who, you know, everybody assumes those, well, they're close to God, don't get it, is because their pride, the sin of pride has blocked it. So their self-righteousness has blocked their awareness of sin. And sin just has that way. Sin has that way of opening that up. Let me just sort of summarize what sin does as it, it drives us away from God and it blinds us to, to who He is. Because this is important because it, it, you know, it can be a low-grade kind of thing that we don't think it's still there, but it is still there and, unless we let God have all of who we are and clean up all of it in our life. Look at this. Sin relentlessly drives us into ourselves. We've said that before. But what I want you to understand is that it drives us into ourselves so deeply we can't see anything but ourselves. Everything's about us. Everything's about who we are, what I want, my opinions, my this and that. Maybe you've known somebody like that. Do not look at them right now. But that, it's, it, it's a very small universe being driven into yourself. But you think that's all there is. Sin, sin makes you think that. So secondly, it brutally deceives us about, where, uh, the, uh, about what we're walking into. Whether it be what our future is going to be like or what eternity is going to be like. It, it, it deceives us about, you know, what, what God's going to be like when we die. Oh, he'll let me in. He'll, he'll you know. And, and, and remember the words of the serpent back in the Garden of Eden? God, did God really say? It makes us doubt all of that kind of thing. And thirdly, it violates our ability to know who we really are. You know, that's why we have so many ups and downs, you know. I'm, I'm great. No, I'm terrible. I'm great. No, I'm terrible. I'm great. No, I'm terrible. Up and down and all around. It's the sin that, you know, I'll take care of myself. Remember uh, last week we saw the demon say through that man, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? What do you have to do with us, God? That's really the, the verbiage of our time and every time uh, of people that have, uh, have rejected him, 
right? What do you, just leave me alone, let me do my own thing. Uh, fourthly, <clears throat> it, it viciously makes us think that we are better off than we really are. Yeah, I, I kind of like myself, doggone it. I, we'll, we'll be fine, which nothing wrong with liking yourself, but when it covers up all this other stuff, there's a big problem with liking yourself. And finally, fifthly, it, this is probably the worst part of it all. The, it, sin clouds over the longing we have for forgiveness and relationship with God, so we forget that it's even there. In other words, it can still be low grade. It can still be kind of, in terms of our feeling and our sense of it. This is why the idea of, you know, having to meet my felt needs is such a bunch of baloney is because my felt needs can be wrong. And I I can not feel the need for this. And, you know, God's got this all fixed up. And I've been to church this many times and so forth and so on. But I've never let Jesus come in and forgive all that and clean it all out and, and put his spirit in my life. I just, you know, I know how to put on the act. I'm going to make a radical statement here, a controversial statement, and I want you to all listen, because I don't want to be misunderstood, because this one is really easily misunderstood, especially by people who are Jesus followers, who have been forgiven by Christ, but the feelings still trick you, and you still feel guilty all the time, okay? That's, that's, especially you people, this is not who I'm not, I'm not talking about you, okay? But look at this. It is because so many people short-circuit genuine personal repentance that we have much of the emotional and spiritual problems that we have today. Let me explain that. When Jesus is here with these tax collectors and sinners, he doesn't make them repent before he comes in the room. He just hangs with them as they are. But you see this process where it's like, I'm, I need help, Jesus. I need, they, they repent. That's what it is. I'm turning everything over to you. Matthew certainly did. I'm giving to you. You see, when you, when you only do it halfway, how do you repent halfway? You repent halfway by maybe saying, okay, God, I'm going to go to church every week and so forth and so on, but could you kind of just leave me alone during the week because i got business to do? Or, you know, I say, well, I'm going to give you all of my life uh, except for this part. I want to keep this part aside, whether it be resources or finances or a relationship I know I shouldn't have or whatever it is. Just let me, um, you know, everything but that. You know, a part is, not, is nothing, is what this seems to indicate, this kind of genuine repentance we're talking about. And, and, and it's sort of like, you know, or, or you can do it with positive thinking. Nothing wrong with positive thinking. But when it covers over this sort of low-grade burden of carrying the sin that you're on your own, if it's going to be, it's up to me, you kind of carry that around, that is just as corrosive if you're half-repented, so to speak, short-circuited it, it's just as corrosive, it's just as reductive to who you are. That's the nastiness of sin. But Jesus says, hey, I can get rid of all that. And that's why, having said all that, that's why these people, and people in our time, who maybe most people look at and go, well, there goes one, a sinner. Maybe in some cases, in many cases, certainly in this case, in Matthew's case and his friend's case, they're closer to God than the people who were religious. That is so religiously incorrect, so politically incorrect in many ways. But that's who Jesus is. That's who the Son of Man is. Let me give you an up-to-date example of this party at Matthew's house, okay, and how it still works this way today. Um, You probably haven't heard this. I just heard it a couple of weeks ago. I'd forgotten that I'd read it somewhere else. But did you know that your family, uh, your denominational family of churches, supports a seminary inside, uh, the, the only, only, uh, only church to do so, only seminary inside a maximum security prison 
in the Western world, as far as I know. Uh, our seminary does. It's, it's Stateville uh, Penitentiary and, um, in uh, Illinois. And uh, our seminary professors from North Park Seminary, which is a part the, the, the seminary affiliated with our, our denomination, sends professors down there. And these inmates can actually get a Bible degree from seminary professors uh, by going through these classes. Isn't that interesting? Well, there's another story that connects to it, so I've got to tell you that story too. Have you heard of Lauren Daigle? Lauren Daigle is a, a pop Christian star, and um, she has had a number one hit at the top of the Billboard Christian charts. And it's, this is starting to show up in places like the New York Times. I mean, they're talking about Christian music. It's amazing. 66 weeks running as of middle of October. Number one, breaks all the records. Her, her song, uh, You Say. And, and uh, it, it's a powerful song about what God says about who she is and so forth and so on. And it, it's just an uh, amazing thing that she's been able to stay on top of the charts all this time. There is another one that looks like it's going to knock her off of the top spot. It's called Rescued, but that's also her song. So that's not a problem. <clears throat> so, anyway, about a year ago, September, October, Lauren Daigle calls up the uh, dean of the seminary, a friend of mine uh, at North Park Seminary. He, he's actually the dean of the whole thing, the overseer of the whole thing. His name's Dave Kirsten. And, and he, she calls him and she says, this is Lauren Daigle. She says, oh, hey, hi. And she says, yeah, I'm going to be on a tour in Illinois. And I hear you guys have a seminary. I just heard about this. And the Lord's really put on my heart that I need to hang out with the least of these like Jesus did. And so she, she says, can I just come and give him a concert? And he's, well, let me think. Yeah, yeah, you can. And so they tell all the guys and they pack out the gym in this um, uh, in this. Uh, penitentiary, and they're all together, they're, they're worshiping and praising, because, you know, if, you, if you've ever followed what goes on in prison, when everything's stripped away from you, you start to think about what's really important. And, and yeah, maybe you got in there because your own stupid doing. Yes, right. And maybe some horrific things, but it's just kind of all stripped away. You say, what is going on? And, and so there's a lot of Christians that went in there, and they just had this big worship service. One of the guys had written a rap song. She let them uh, play, him play it and, and stance to it, and, and, every, and uh, the band backed him up, and it was just it was pretty amazing. But that was last fall, October. Let's fast forward to April or May of this year, 2019. I can't remember which month, but it was in the spring. And, and she calls up Dave again and says, hey, I'm going to be on tour again. Can I come to the prison? He goes, yeah, great. Yeah, you want to give another concert? She said, no, I just want to be with the guys. And he goes, oh, I got just the thing. Because you see, these guys, they, they meet together for worship weekly, whether they're in the seminary program or not. They meet together in the gym. And they sit in this circle in the gym and pray and sing for, with one another. And apparently some of the guards are trying to get duty on that, uh, to watch over that one because it's a much better group of people to take care of sometimes. So they just are, are there. And um, so they didn't tell anybody that Lauren was coming again. So she just walks in on that meeting. And everybody goes, hey, oh, you know, you're here to do a concert? No, I'm just here to be with you guys. Oh, yeah. So they start talking and praying together, and people are getting in the middle of the circle, laying hands on them, so forth and so on. And then she starts singing a cappella, and her band kind of hums along and so forth, and they start singing these hymns together. And it's just really, they're just having this huge worship service with, with Lauren Daigle and her band. And the guards are over, the, some of those guys are tapping their feet and singing along, apparently. I don't know if they're supposed to or not, but, so don't tell anybody I told you that. But... But, she, but they're, 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 and all of a sudden, there's this, there's this guy uh, who I think his nickname is Smitty. I'm not sure, but I think it's Smitty. 
who has gone through the entire seminary program. He's got his Bible uh, certificate is what they get. They don't get a full uh, master's degree, but they get a Bible certificate. And he, uh, he's finished it, and uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of their worship, a guard starts to walk over to Smitty, and, and uh, Dave said, uh, we all kind of noticed that he was having a hard time holding it together. He kind of, he looked like he was, his eyes were watering up a little bit, and he leans over to the guy loud enough for a few people around uh, Smitty to hear, you're getting out today. <laughs> and Smitty said, no, <laughs> I want to stay here. And Dave said, Dave said, it was amazing because nobody in that circle said, oh man, I wish it was me. They were all shouting and hooping and hollering and bring them in the middle of the circle, pray over them. Lauren started singing a song for him and so forth and so on. And they just kept going. And Smitty said, just give me a minute. And the guard says, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll hold off the warden as long as we can. Finally, the warden comes in and she says, you know what, Smitty, you got to go because we got a bunch of other stuff that's going on. It's all set up. You got you to come to the office. He goes, Okay. So he comes, gives hugs and so forth, and not with the band because you're not allowed to touch people in there apparently uh, in, this situ- in this setting. So he, as he walks out the gate for the first time to be free in years and years and years, there's the seminary professor standing there giving him hugs because they can now and, you know, and so forth and so on. Then the crowd parts and there's Lauren Daigle. She'd stayed. She told him she had to get on to her concert, but she wasn't going to miss this. So she saw him walking out and gave him a big hug. Here's my information if you ever need anything. You know what Smitty's doing now? He's going to seminary. He's enrolled this fall, and he's going to be a pastor because God has completely turned his life upside down. That's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is doing with these tax collectors and sinners. You see, what Jesus has is he has this, um, this uh, attitude, this worldview about what he's up to on this earth. And you could really summarize his, world, his entire coming to earth with this worldview. And everything that we're going to celebrate in the next couple of months, you can, you can kind of summarize it in this, this attitude or this worldview that he has about why he's here. And, and there are some people today, even some Christian people, who've kind of done a, a caricature of this a little bit. And they say, you know, uh, we need to go with the sinners and the tax collectors and stuff. And we need to admit that, you know, we've got problems too and so forth and so on. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, admitting your problems and being, you know, and being honest about that. That's actually a good thing. But not to be li- so you can be like people. I mean, a, a non-believer doesn't want you to be like them in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, hey, you know, why would I want what you've got? You've got the, your, your life is just as cruddy as mine or whatever right? What, what, but, but that's not what Jesus is doing among these people. It's also a failure not to go to them. You see, Jesus has this attitude, I will go to them. I will go to those who aren't like me. I will go to those who are outside. We will go to them. We've said that we want to be a, a, a gospel-loving church that makes resilient disciples and that we want to do whatever it takes to share the love of the gospel, love of Jesus with People and, and, and that's what makes us resilient, in the, especially now in this culture, but even more so in the future in this culture. I'm telling you what. If we don't have the same attitude of Jesus when he came to earth, I will go to them. You see, God the Father didn't just kind of on a whim say, hey, you know, this world is getting so out of control. I think I'm just going to, you know, send you down there, son. Can you go down there? Not one of those whim kind of things. It was, no, this is something that was in plan from days of old by the ancient of days. 
that God sent him, and Jesus said, yes, 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 yes. And he's asking us to say yes, 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 by his power and his presence in our life, that we would be people who go to them, whoever the them is. That's, that's the number one mark of being a believer in Jesus, number one mark being a, a, a uh, a resilient believer. And please understand me, I'm not talking about being an extrovert that talks about your faith all the time. And if that's not how God's gifted you, that's not how God's gifted you. But not withholding yourself or keeping in the holy huddle and never breaking out. Or your group going out together. That's, that's another good example of, you know, these friends who are around this guy, uh, this paralyzed guy. And, and, you know, your friends around you, you go to them together. We will go to them. We're a church that wants to be a church that supports in the, each other and going to them. You see, what's interesting here is if you take, if you have an interlinear um, gospel, which it takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it tries to put it in the same timeline. So all four timeline, or all four stories that come up in those gospels, because not all the gospels have the same stories, but it puts it in the same time frame and, 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 and the same uh, chronologically where it happened. If you look at that, according to, to uh, that interlinear, uh, Matthew tells these same stories that we've seen in second chapter of Mark. He tells the same stories in his ninth chapter of the book of Matthew. He tells about him being picked up by Jesus at the, um, at the tax collector booth. And I, I love those first three words, Jesus went out. <laughs> and he walks right by the tax collector booth. And so it's there, but also it's the same time frame as this party and, and hang, hiring and then hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, people who were such sinners that the Pharisee says it's okay to lie to these people. They ripped off their own people. I mean, imagine an IRS agent coming up to you and looking at you and saying, okay, you paid $30,000 in taxes this year. You know what? That's not enough. We're going to double it. Can I have it, please? I mean, they... they they would do that, and then they'd scoop off the double, the, the portion of the top. And then they, they'd sometimes go into people's houses and take stuff. You know, you can begin to see how horrible these people had been with their lives. And yet Jesus went and hung with them when nobody else would because he had that, we will go to them. And, he, and, and Matthew tells us exactly why. At the end of the, the ninth chapter of Matthew, here's, listen to these words. When, the, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers who will say, I will go to them. That's basically what that means. That's the kind of mission that we're on with the Son of Man, with Jesus that's what he's here for, and that's what he's invited us in on to see the exciting things that he's going to do and the lives he's going to touch and change. I'm going to invite the band out here, but before, or while they do, you just look at me because I have one more thing to say. I want us to all hear this. You know, what, what we've seen today is you've seen this sort of, uh, you've seen confidence in God, in the Son of Man, and then you've seen this sense of humility that I can't do this by myself. Okay, I, get that, I get that feeling every Sunday morning when I'm sitting in that chair right there. I can't do this by myself. And, 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 but when you take the confidence in God and the humility that ta- tells God that we don't, you know you can't do it by yourself, what you wind up with is the most compelling, powerful lifestyle and, and, and seeing things that you never thought you'd see in your life. 
So that's why I ask you to do this. I'm asking you sometime this week to have some prayer time, maybe every day, I don't know, but have some prayer time when you ask yourself, is that, we, is that I will go to them, just like Jesus had that attitude? Is that the kind of worldview and attitude that I have? Ask yourself if your family within Jesus' family, that is your small group, it might be your small group, it might be not an official small group, it's just Christians you hang out with. Is that what your family within Jesus' family says? Do you help each other with that? And thirdly, is my family, my natural family, is that what we're trying to learn together? Or if you've got kids, is that what I'm teaching my kids? To, to step out a little bit and to see the wondrous, miraculous, powerful miracles of the Son of Man that changes people's lives. And after all, that's the biggest change of all, right? That's the most miraculous thing. Because we can do a lot of things with medical science and all kinds of stuff today, but we can't get inside somebody's head and change their mind or turn their heart. It's only by God and His Spirit that can do that. So would you pray those prayers with me and just ask Him for yourself, you know, and ask Him for your family. And let's all be a church family that, that does that together this week, okay? And let, let me start by praying with you for us. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending Your Son the one who has long been waited for. We didn't fully know it. We don't know his name sometimes, but what we do know is we sure would like to see someone who could come to help us. And that longing that is there, I pray that you would bring it forward, that you would help us to know that you are that one, that you have arrived, that your presence is that powerful. And Jesus, I thank you for being here with us today and every day and this week and as we go out these doors and as we go to work, as we go to school, that we would see it's not wasted time. It's never time away from you if we are yours. It's time, it's experiences, it's work, it's school that you are present in through us and that you want to do wondrous things, touching others and in the process changing us. We love you, Jesus, that you're so gentle with us and you're so loving toward us and yet you don't shift around you don't change on us overnight. We have a firm place to stand, but at the same time, your mercies and your love, every morning we discover new things and new wondrous things about you. We love you, Jesus. And that's why we pray all of these things, asking you to help us be like you and going to others. And in your name, amen.